you. So, would you open to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, and we're looking at verses 21 to 27 this morning. And it is fun, it is exciting for me, a thrill to preach God's Word, to follow and study the greatest subject in all of history, and that is Jesus Christ. And uh, man, these passages just keep getting better and better. So Matthew 16, we're looking at verses 21 to 27 this morning. Matthew 16, 21. First, I'll read the passage. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. When you hear the statement, God has a wonderful plan for your life, what comes to mind? Do you think about that old preacher? Gets up there with a southern twang. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know he's talking about you getting the American dream. What he means is that you'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. You'll be comfortable. You'll be living a pain-free life. Is that what comes into your mind when you think God has a wonderful plan for my life? Now, I want you to take that idea and compare it to the life of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ get the large estate with the white picket fence? Did he live pain-free, comfortable? Was it easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? One of my favorite lines from a movie. Did he avoid things like hunger, thirst, weariness? Did he avoid relational issues? Did he avoid betrayal? Did Jesus avoid avoid abandonment? Did he avoid pain? Did he avoid torture? Did he avoid being murdered? Then why, why is it? That when we hear God has a wonderful plan for our life, we think it's going to look different than Jesus's. Friend, who do you think you're following? You call yourself a Christian. That means you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And how could we 
expect a whole different kind of wonderful plan for our life when God's wonderful plan for Jesus' life was that he would suffer, that he would experience extraordinary pain, both relationally and physically, and that he would even be crucified for the words that he said and who he was. Why do we expect different when the Bible is so clear? You know, Jesus said that if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up a cross, an instrument of murder, and follow me. Why do we expect a bed of roses? Why do we expect easy peasy? Why do we complain, grumble when things in our life are not what we expected? You know, John MacArthur summed it up well. He said this, The Bible repeatedly makes it clear that there must be a cross before a crown, suffering before glory, sacrifice before reward. The heart of the Christian life is giving before getting and losing before winning. It's exactly what Jesus teaches us in this passage. This was the way for our king, and so it's the way as his followers. We must come to grips with the suffering of the cross of this life to really embrace the hope and the glory of the next life. And so let's look first at God's wonderful plan for Jesus. Jesus first tells his disciples the wonderful plan for his life. He gives them the full scope of it. He says in verse 21, or Matthew writes, From that time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. This is a turning point in Jesus' life. He has demonstrated that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, by a variety of convincing proofs. And now he tells his disciples what he must do as the Christ. He's revealed his person, now he's going to describe his work and it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must do these things. He must. That word must is strong. It also, it also means to be tied to something. To be bound to something. Jesus is bound to these things that he's setting before them. He is like a, a train a locomotive tied to the tracks of this path. He can't turn from it to the right or to the left. He can't stop it. These things must happen. I wonder, is that how you respond to God's plan for your life? Do you feel yourself tied to God's will, God's way, God's plan, or are you on another track? Are you living for your way? Your wonderful plan or idea of what that might be for your life. No, Jesus was bound to his Father's will. And he was bound, we see in the text, to five objectives. Okay, to keep with the analogy, Jesus was set for five stops on his track. These things must happen, Jesus says. Here they are. They're given to us in the infinitive form, which you have the word to in front of it. You'll see it in the text. Verse 21. Jesus is bound first to go. Second, he is bound 
to suffer. He is, third, bound to be killed. Fourth, he's bound to be raised. Then if we go to verse 27, he's bound to come back. These things must happen. Why? Why are these things important? Well, let's look at the significance of each of them, okay? Go back to verse 21. Jesus is first bound to go. That is, to go to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a place of significance in the Bible. It's hard to get around the significance of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is where the Sanhedrin resided. That's where uh, you know, Jesus was going to meet with the elders, chief priests, and scribes. That's where they sit. Jerusalem is where the temple sits. If you remember from our study in Genesis, Genesis 22, where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and, and it was a mountain in Moriah. And it was said to this day that on the mountain Moriah, God provides Jehovah Jireh. Do you remember that? God provides his sacrifice on a mountain in Moriah. Jerusalem sits on a mount in Moriah. Jerusalem is the center of messianic prophecy. It is where the Messiah will redeem, where the Messiah will restore, and where the Messiah will reign over his people. Jerusalem is significant. So first, he's bound to go to Jerusalem. Second, Jesus was bound to suffer. Specifically, to suffer many things from the religious elite. Here's another prophecy that he must fulfill. And I would argue the greatest prophecy that Israel has forgotten. Isaiah 53. He was, talking about the Messiah, despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. For as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Well, they missed that prophecy. They expected a Messiah that would be a political leader and relieve them of the oppression of Rome. They did not expect a suffering servant. Well, the one that Isaiah describes, even Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected. That stone became the cornerstone. They didn't expect the Messiah to suffer, but they should have known he was bound to suffer. God's plan for Jesus was to suffer by the hands of his own. We esteemed him not, speaking of Israel. They should have known that he was bound to suffer, but not just suffer. Jesus was third, bound to be killed. Bound to be murdered. Why did Jesus have to die? You ask that question? Why did Jesus have to die? You're involved in the answer. Because you have sinned. You're a sinner. That's why Jesus had to die. He had to die and suffer the penalty for your sin. God's law is clear in Leviticus. Without the shedding of blood... Oh, excuse me, that's Hebrews. I'm getting ahead of myself. He, Leviticus... Life is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
And for it is the shedding of blood that makes atonement, that forgives sin. Here's Hebrews. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The blood of animals cannot do it, Hebrews 10.4. That's why Jesus the Christ came to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice once and for all, Hebrews 10. Isaiah 53 told them that he would have to die. He would have to be pierced for our transgressions. He would have to be crushed for our iniquities. He would have to pour out his soul to death to bear the sins of many. He must die. He had to. Why? So that we can be forgiven. So that we wouldn't have to die the eternal spiritual death that we all deserve. If Jesus doesn't die, friend, if we hold Jesus back from his death, then we are damned in our sins. He must die. He must be killed for our salvation. But not just killed. He was set for another objective. Jesus was bound to be raised on the third day. Jesus was bound to be raised, resurrected. David prophesied that God would not abandon our souls to death and that he wouldn't let his Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16. Genesis 3.15 told us that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the source of temptation, the prince of the power of this world that brought sin and temptation into the world and brought in the curse, sin and death. The curse must be reversed. That serpent needs to be kicked in the head. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ does that. He must be raised from the dead so that the gates of Sheol can be overtaken. He must be raised from the dead so that sin and death can be defeated. Paul tells us without the resurrection, you're still damned in your sins. Paul says without the resurrection, your faith is futile. Paul says, without the resurrection, your future is not life and hope. It's death. But because Jesus was raised, because he was bound to be resurrected, we who believe can have assurance that we will one day rise again to be with him, immortal, imperishable, glorified with Christ forever. The resurrection is important. Don't leave it out of your gospel presentation. Jesus was bound to be raised. He must be raised. And finally, Jesus was bound to come back. After the cross comes the crown. After suffering comes glory. Daniel describes one like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven. Presented before the ancient of days. And to this Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In verse 27, Jesus explicitly identifies Himself as this Son of Man. Look at what He says in verse 27. For... The Son of Man is going 
to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. Do not be mistaken. Jesus must suffer. He must die. He must be raised in this life. But He must also come back again. He came in this first advent to serve and suffer as a sacrifice for sins and to make full atonement for sin by his life, death, and resurrection. But he promises to come back. The king will return and make all wrongs right. He will physically rule here and over the whole world. All nations will serve him. All peoples will worship and serve the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's coming back. He's bound to. He's bound to. See what a wonderful plan God has for Jesus' life? Isn't it good when you see the full scope of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ? All these events are necessary. All these events are important for the glory of Christ and for your salvation, for our salvation. But Peter doesn't like it. He doesn't like God's plan. Peter would prefer his plan for Jesus. Look at what Peter says. Peter took him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Peter goes from the mountaintop of confessing the glorious person of Jesus Christ Peter was the one who said, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He goes from that mountaintop to the low, low, low valley of denouncing the glorious work of Christ. Yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I will not allow what you say is going to happen to happen. As far as it depends on me, as if he has the ability to stop the locomotive from going forward on these tracks. It's ridiculous. He rebukes him. But how many of us can sympathize with Peter and go, yeah, there have been times in my life where I've said, God, it's my way, not your way. I want to do things my way. I think my way is better. My plan's better than yours. You've been in this place. Jesus turns and says to Peter in verse 23, get Behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. That word hindrance is literally stumbling block. You're a stumbling block. To continue with the analogy, here's a summary of what Jesus said. Petros, you remember what that meant? Little stone. You are a pebble on the track. And I'm a freight train moving forward, bound to my Father's will. Get out of the way. Peter's words hit a nerve with Jesus. This is a strong rebuke. And I think it's because he's been tempted in this way before. He calls Peter Satan, identifying the spiritual force behind Peter's rebuke. Do you remember Satan's temptation? This is an, this is an echo of that temptation in the wilderness. What did Satan offer Jesus? Satan said, I'll give you your kingdom. I'll give you this kingdom. 
I'll give it to you without the pain, without the suffering, without the death that God has planned for you. Just worship me. I.e., Jesus, I have a wonderful plan for your life. A plan to prosper you, to make you wealthy, healthy, and the top dog on this world. Just bow and serve and worship me. What did Jesus say to Satan? He said, be gone, Satan. Get out of my way. I am bound to my Father's will. I worship and serve God alone. Amen? Can you imagine now, let's think about the implications if Jesus fell to Satan's temptation. Or if Jesus fell at this moment to Peter's temptation. If Jesus went, all right, Peter, that sounds like a better plan. You know what? I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die. I don't want to drink that cup that my father has for me. I'm just going for the throne now. Going for the crown without the cross. What are the implications for you and I, friend? We are doomed. Damned. In our sins. Because no sacrifice has been made. No atonement has been made for us. If Jesus doesn't suffer and die in our place. I am so thankful that Jesus didn't succumb to the temptation of Satan, nor the temptation of Peter here. He says, I'm bound for God's plan, God's way, God's path. Isaiah 55 says, His thoughts, speaking of God's thoughts, are not our thoughts. Neither are our ways His ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways higher than our ways, and His thoughts than our thoughts. Peter, Jesus, in his kindness, explains to Peter something similar in verse 23. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. Peter, your plan for my life is humanistic. It's man-centered. God's plan for my life is much higher than your ability to think or conjure up. And you've got your mind in the dirt, in the dirt of men, the dust of men. You need to start having your mind set in the heavens on the things above where Christ sits. Peter's error is the same error that sometimes infects us and infects the whole world. It's man-centered thinking. It's all about me, self, self self-centered. Peter thought the Messiah could fit his mold. His ambitions, his plan, his way. But it's only God's plan for Jesus that was truly wonderful and would accomplish our salvation. And that includes suffering and dying. God's wonderful plan for Jesus includes suffering and dying. So, Christian, follower of Christ, what do you expect? What do you expect for your life? Jesus gives us what our expectations should be. Point number two in your outline. That was God's plan for Jesus. Now, let's look at Jesus' wonderful plan for you. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. He sets before you three objectives, three stops on your track. Here they are. Verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's Jesus' wonderful plan for your life, friend. Coming after Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, that is to follow in his footsteps. That is to put
puts your train on the tracks behind him, following his example. And if you wish to do that, Jesus says you have to do these three things. Let's look at the significance of each of them. First of all, you need to deny yourself. And here is where the rubber meets the road of the Christian life. The hardest stop, let's say, to deny yourself. You know what that word deny means? It means to forsake. It means to literally refuse to recognize someone. Same word, by the way, that describes Peter's denial of Jesus. Remember when Peter denied Jesus? Peter went as far as to invoke a curse on his own life, to swear, and then to say, I don't know him. There's a picture of Peter's denial of Jesus. And so what do you think it looks like for you to deny yourself? If you want to come after Jesus, this is your first stop. Disown yourself. Disown all selfish desires, all selfish ambitions, all selfish pursuits, self-interest, self-preservation. Declare to yourself, I don't know you. I refuse to recognize you. Now, this is absolutely contrary to the world. The world that is all about self-help, self-love, self-image, self-respect, self-fulfillment, self-esteem. And after you do those things, take a selfie. The world is all about self. The world preaches the anthem of Satan, which is, don't think about anybody else. Think about you. Jesus says, no, no. First stop behind my train is to deny yourself. To have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2 describes it to us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Wait a minute. Did you see what Paul just did there? Paul says that if you are truly in Christ, this mind is yours. You have it. This has been forced into your thinking, this kind of mentality. Here it is. Who, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He could have come down to the earth and flexed his muscles, his glory. Could have done things his way and just absolutely subdued all earthly powers, including the Roman Empire. Could have done it with a snap of his fingers, but he didn't. The text says he emptied himself. Self-humiliated himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. How far? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, this mindset is in you. Deny yourself. You come last. Renounce. Deny all selfish desire. If you wish to come after Jesus, you need to first deny yourself. Number two, you need to take up your cross. You need to take up your cross. The cross, as behind me, is a, is a symbol of suffering and death. 
Apparently, it was invented by the Assyrians, who were known for their cruelty. Alexander the Great, I guess, he brought crucifixion to the Eastern Mediterranean nations in the 4th century BC. But it was the Romans who perfected the art of crucifixion. Death by crucifixion was humiliating torture. It was reserved for the worst of criminals and almost always foreigners. Romans wouldn't crucify themselves unless it was really bad. People were crucified naked and in public places. And there were multiple pain factors. Obviously, you have the nails driven through the wrists and feet. You're attached to rough wood. Likely would have been flogged before crucified. So your raw, open wounds on your back are rubbing against rough wood. And the pain of the piercings. But that's just the start of it. The cause of death most, in most crucifixions was suffocation. Hanging by the wrist, victim, victims would struggle to breathe, to lift themselves up, to open up the lungs and the diaphragm. They had to push up on the nails in their feet in order to gasp for a good breath. They would do this for hours, sometimes days. It was excruciating torture. Until finally, what the Romans did were they would break the person's legs. Why? So they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe. And they would eventually die, maybe from cardiac arrest, suffocation. That is the instrument Jesus tells you and I, friend, to pick up. Take that up. That instrument of torture, suffering, and death, you need to take it up if you want to come after me. What did you expect? A bed of roses? A comfortable life following Jesus? Suffering for Jesus, but smooth sailing for you, huh? A cross for Jesus, but comfort and coins for you. The American dream. We're following a man who suffered, a man who was acquainted with grief, a man full of sorrows, a man hated by the world, abandoned by his friends, killed by his enemies, and crucified on a cross. That's who we're following, just as a reminder. Still want to come after him? Still want to call yourself a Christian? If you come after Jesus, you should expect suffering. The scriptures are clear. 2 Timothy 2.3. We read it this morning. Paul invites Timothy, hey, share. Not share my food. Not share the roof over my head. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Peter said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Expect it. Finally, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, here's a promise. Here's a promise that God wants you to take up in your life. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Grab that one and walk out the door today. Jesus took up a cross. He took up his cross. And now he turns and says, Disciple, it's your turn to pick up yours. Take up your cross.
every true disciple bears one. You, you may not be flogged. You may not be crucified. You may not be martyred. You may have a generally comfortable life. But if you are truly a disciple of Jesus, you will face trouble. You will. Can't avoid it. You will be persecuted. The Bible promises it. You'll have trouble in this life. You will feel the pains of the cursed world that you live in. The pain of loss. The pain of suffering. The pain of physical pain. Spiritual pain. Heartbreak. Betrayal. You'll face those things. Why? 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 Because He did. And He walks before you. And you're coming after Him. So friend, be realistic about your life. You can expect that there will be hard times. That there will be trouble. But the Bible also promises that there is a crown after the cross. There is glory after the suffering. There is hope for you. An eternal weight of glory. If you pass through this momentary light affliction. If you remain steadfast even through the suffering. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and thirdly, follow Him. This is the only command that is in the present active, um, is a present active imperative. That's the sense that, hey, follow Jesus and keep following Jesus. Okay, this is something you need to do ongoing and continually. This is the essence of the call of discipleship. This is what Jesus told the men the fishermen, he said, come follow me, right? Leave the nest, nets, leave, leave your father behind, come follow me. This is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a follower, a learner. However hard the path or difficult the journey, moment by moment, day by day, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, my cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. There is the anthem of discipleship. What it means to be a true follower of Christ, a Christian. You're following him. He's before you. No matter how difficult it is. With Jesus before us and his promise to always be with us, we follow him. He's the object of our faith. And we follow him all the way through, the, through to the finish line when we will be with him in glory. That's the Christian life. It's not voting a certain way. It's not being healthy, wealthy, and business prosperous on this earth. It's not living a comfortable you know, Judeo-Christian morality-centered life. Following Christ. And with that comes trouble. With that comes pain. With that comes suffering. But with that also comes hope, joy, glory, pleasures at His right hand that are far greater than the pleasures of this earth. Freedom from slavery to sin's power and to slavery to death's power. Resurrection and eternal life. That's the great perspective of the Christian life. I wonder, have you done these things? Have you denied yourself, taken up your cross, and followed Jesus? 
And what's great about this passage is that Jesus doesn't give us commands, things to do without motivation. He doesn't say, hey, do these things and good luck. Jesus gives us three reasons that we should do this. Three reasons we see in the, in the text. Verse 25, 26, and 27. Three fours. You see that at the beginning of the verse? Four. Here's the reason why you should deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. First, if you exchange this life for Christ, you win. And the vice versa is true. If you exchange Christ for this life, the earthly life, well, you lose. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The key in the text is for my sake. Just because you die or you suffer or you have a hard life doesn't mean you get the eternal weight of glory. It needs to be forsaken for his sake. His sake. You can lose in this life and you can lose in the next without Jesus. But if you willingly sacrifice status, wealth, climbing up, climbing up the ladder, even sacrifice your own very life for the sake of Christ, you win every time. That's a good exchange. Jesus says in John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We're so easily distracted and captivated by the abundance that's here on earth. We need to be Distracted, motivated, and captivated by the abundance that is for us with Christ in heaven. So first, be motivated that if you exchange this life for Christ, you win. You won't lose. Second, His life is infinitely more valuable than this life. His life is infinitely more valuable than this life. Verse 26, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You could toil and strive for the life of a billionaire. You could have it for, let's say, 80 years. 80 years you live the life of a billionaire. But then you die. Then comes judgment. Do you have Christ? If not... Not just 80 years, not just 160, not just 320, not just 640, but eternity, eternity will be spent separated from God's love under his wrath and punishment, suffering in hell. Was it worth it? You had the whole world. You were a billionaire for 80 years. Compared to eternity, it's nothing. What shall a man give? in return for his soul. We're all like day traders on the stock exchange. We're constantly looking for ways to make ourselves happy. Oh, exchange this for that. This relationship for that relationship. This money for that money. What's going to fulfill me? What's going to bring me joy, happiness, and hope, and peace? Jesus says, once the soul is forfeit to the world, there's no price you could pay to get it back. You lose. You lose it. There's nothing you can offer God in this world to get back your soul once it's forfeit to the things of this world. Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing 
infinitely more valuable worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him and have righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience to the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. His life is infinitely more valuable than this life. If you were to put them on the scale, well, you couldn't because there's no comparison between eternal life and the few short years you have here of, let's say, success. Finally, the third motivation. To live sold out for Christ, to, de to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Him, is that Jesus is coming back to either award or judge your decision. What will you decide? To follow Jesus or to give all that up for this world? Here's a promise and a warning for you. He's coming back and he will either award or judge your decision. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come. That's a fact. He's bound to Come with his angels and in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. On that day, those who have made the great exchange, that is, I'll give away this life for Christ's life, they will be handsomely rewarded by Christ himself in the kingdom that he sets up. You will have abundance, not just abundance, but everlasting life with Christ forever. It was a good trade, a great exchange. But those who have forfeited Christ's life for this life, those who put all their eggs into this burning basket, well, that's just the start of it. They can expect condemnation and judgment on that day. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. They will be cast away into eternal punishment. Jesus preaches about hell. Doesn't avoid the subject. It's for those who deny him. It's for those who exchange his life, his offer for their life, their way. It's those who tie themselves to the tracks of this life, wanting the pleasures, the comforts, the securities of this earth in exchange for what Christ has offered them in heaven. If you choose this life, Jesus is promising you, I'm coming back and you will repay. You will repay. Pick your poison. Self-denial and suffering here, or Christ's denial and eternal suffering then and there. What's your decision? Whose plan are you bound to? Still stuck in your way? Is it your way or the highway? Are you sticking with your idols, your sin, your worldly comforts, desires, aspirations, and ambitions? Those pleasures, that relief, that satisfaction, the substance, whatever it is. Are you, you holding on to that and sticking to that track? Or are you ready to surrender all? Deny yourself. Take up that cross and follow Jesus. Christian, if you've done that, remember and expect this life's not easy. It comes with trouble. 
Why? Because Christ went through trouble. And if the world hated him, they're going to hate us. If it was hard for him, it'll be hard for us. But guess what? We have a Savior who sympathizes and knows because he went before us. And we have a Savior who's going to make all things right in glory. Who has accomplished the great work of salvation on our behalf and will raise us again with him in glory. Death for us as Christians is just a doorway into eternity with Christ, our King, our Savior. Oh, Jesus does have a wonderful plan for your life. He does. That's not wrong. It's just not what the world says it is. It's not as bad as the American dream. That would be awful. Oh, if you just got the American dream, what a tragedy. But the, the great plan of Jesus Christ, yes, it involves suffering. Yes, it involves the cost of discipleship. But you have the eternal weight of glory of knowing him and being with him forever. That's God's wonderful plan for your life. Will you follow it? Let's pray. Father, your ways are much higher than our ways. Your thoughts are far better than our thoughts. Your plan is so much better than our plan. God, it just seems like we, I'm including myself, we just take great pains and struggle and strive for the, for the things in this world and get so distracted by things like money, things like temporary pleasure, things like temporary securities and comforts, distractions. Lord, we lose sight of the great weight of eternity and the great plan of redemption, the great work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that accomplished our salvation. God, help us to be, to set our minds on the things of you, to have our minds where you are, not like the things that man would think. Lord, help us to count the cost, to be able to deny ourselves. Take up that cross and follow you. To expect and embrace the trouble in this life so that we can expect and embrace the Savior, Christ our Lord, in the next. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us the humility to wait and to trust in you in the trouble in this life. God, I pray for your presence in the trouble. Lord, we know that you went before us that you were afflicted as we are, yet at such a far greater degree, so that we have a Savior who sympathizes with us, a Savior who knows, a Savior who understands, a Savior who promises his presence with us in our suffering. Pray that we would hold tight to Christ, the, the Lord that we follow, that we trust that the suffering in this life is producing for us an eternal weight of glory in the next. Help us to trust that and to cling tightly by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.